Bill is a certified pastoral minister of the Diocese of Cleveland. Uh, we have another certified pastoral minister in the house tonight. Hey. Ta-da. Bill is the director of the Department of Marriage and Family Ministry for the Diocese of Cleveland. He's developing and promoting marriage ministry across the diocese uh, through the family perspective um, in parishes, diocesan offices, as well as among families. Bill has previously worked in three parishes as a pastoral minister and our, our CIA director, adult education, sacramental formation, liturgy planning, and a music director. Bill is a Renaissance man. And the reason I say that is that not only is he deeply into ministry, but he is also into cross-country skiing, uh, which I have always considered of uh, considered only as a means of escaping an advancing army. And Bill knows how to windsurf. Um, I tried this once and saw the inside of Ed, the emergency room at Edward VII Hospital in Bermuda. Um, so uh, you haven't been in the emergency room at Edward VII Hospital in Bermuda. No, okay, well, I hope you never have to do this. Uh, so without any more from me, I am pleased to welcome Bill Boomer to Immaculate Conception Parish. Well, thank you very much, Father. I'm delighted to be here. I've, uh, I was telling Father the first time I've been at your lovely parish. I stopped over for a prayer in the church uh, before coming in here. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, the night's already a success because I was able to pray. I was able to have a meal. And I've met some lovely people. And we sang as part of the prayer. So uh, you've got a wonderful faith-filled community. Uh, the virtue of hospitality, uh, you got a lot of great things going for you here. So uh, I hope I can offer something back to you tonight. Um, before I tell you too much more about me, I want to hear more about you. How many uh, parents do we have here tonight? Do we have any grandparents? Do we have any godparents? Okay, so uh, I, I am... Yes, a certified pastoral minister, a theologian, a religious educator, but I primarily am speaking to you tonight as a father, as a stepfather, as a godfather, as some, and as a grandfather. So uh, to, to tell you a little bit more about me, well, let me hear first from you. Does anyone here have uh, preschool children, preschoolers? How about primary age children okay how about uh, junior high high school college and young adult has anyone successfully has anyone successfully launched them all we want to talk later on how to do that so while tonight's presentation is going to focus on teens that's what the study was on. For those of you who have younger children, consider yourself uh, blessed to be given information that those of us who have teens and older wish we would have had. So you have a head start here. You can build on this. For those of you who are already 
of launched or have young adults, as they say, you never stop being a parent. You will always have influence. And uh, if you're a grandparent, that is true for a couple generations for you. In fact, our catechetical documents remind us grandparents have even more influence now in the area of faith than perhaps was true in the past because of the multiple generations, the longer life that we're living. So the, don't, don't feel like this. this doesn't apply to you if you don't have active teens right now. It actually applies to all of us. So uh, a little more about me. I am married to Leslie for three years. It's a remarriage for both of us. How is this? Well, I was married once before to uh, my first wife, Barb, for 17 years. Uh, two children, Kristen, who's 20, Brian, who's 18, both in college, both engineers, both smart like their mom. Uh, Barb died in 2002. She, uh, too early for uh, what our plans were, but yet God has been faithful to us and uh, helped me to be a single dad for five and a half years. So any uh, single parents or those who have experienced that, it's a challenging calling. But with the support of the Holy Spirit and the support of the church, it is certainly possible because our families are not holy because we are whole or holy, but because God is present with us. So whatever shape a family takes, if the Lord is present, that is a holy family. So after five and a half years in that interim time, a good friend of Barb's and mine, who also was a single parent, Leslie, and I discerned that God was calling us to marry. So the church was very, very helpful to us in discerning and also preparing for the challenges of being a step family. It is different. And most people who remarry and go to be step parents don't understand what they're getting into. It sure helps to have a roadmap. So I would have to say after three years of remarriage, marriage is a wonderful vocation. Number one, if God calls you to it. And number two, if he, if you listen and are joined to the right person. We are wonderfully blessed, and our children have been blessed. Leslie has a daughter, 29, and a son, 24. Sarah is married now five years and has a little boy, Asher, and a little girl just born a week ago, Amelia. So uh, lovely, uh, lovely next generation coming on board. And Joe is recently engaged to marry September 3rd. So uh, the, the what we're talking about here is... I call it the relay race of faith. We heard it already in the reading. Did it come up? Anyone know what this picture is of? Where? Anyone recognize this scene? The Olympics in Beijing in 2008. And what happened to the men's 4 by 100 relay race team? They dropped the baton. They were the most talented, the fastest in the world, the favor to win the race, and yet they were disqualified because they dropped the baton. They didn't even finish. And what I would like to suggest to start this evening tonight is all of us are running a relay race of faith. Most of us have faith because our parents or grandparents 
another family member, someone from a previous generation, usually our families, has handed on to us a authentic faith about God and about the Catholic Church. Every generation then has a responsibility to hand that on to the next generation. So as parents, grandparents, godparents, that's our responsibility. We're going to talk about that tonight. Now, back to the relay race. Anyone? I ran relay races in track. Anybody else? What's the key thing in the relay race? What do you have to practice? It's that handoff. You have to smoothly get it to the runner ahead of you, get it in their hand, and make sure they have it before they take off. Right? So the first race we ran, I ran competitively, we dropped the baton. Our coach was not happy because we were fast, but we were klutzes. <laughs> the next week, all we did the first day at practice is walk and learn the proper form of passing the baton. The next day, he let us jog, passing the baton. Then we took it into a, a, a moderate run, finally getting up to a full run in that tight zone where we get the baton to the guy ahead of us, take it and go and finish strong. We did not lose another race. We won the conference. But even Olympians drop the baton when they're not running right. The women, not to be outdone, did the same thing. And I would propose to you that our Olympians running that race are a kind of a symbol, a metaphor of what's been happening to us. Running fast, pursuing many things, but becoming disconnected as a country, as a culture, particularly in our families. And what I would suggest is if we would get back to learning how to connect with one another, run this race of faith together, our families are going to be better, our churches will be better, our country will be better, because the foundation, our family perspective says, of all of that is the family that God's designed. Would you agree? So, tonight, oh, one other thing. The word tradition comes from that Latin word traditio, which means to hand on. So that's why I think that relay race image really works for us who have so much of a rich tradition to pass on. So our objectives tonight are these three things. To learn about how the faith of our youth is formed, and we're going to draw on a sociological study called the National Study of Youth and Religion. We're going to have the sociologists tell us what they found. Second, from that, confront some challenges that are facing all Americans today, but particularly us Catholics. What are we up against in trying to hand on our faith? And third, to begin, continue a conversation about how all of us can do a better job of running this race and handing on the faith. Sound okay? Now, you do have a couple handouts at the table there and maybe in your packet that will give you some of the uh, conclusions, implications of this study. There's also a white evaluation form 
Yes, the gold one has the implications. Then there's a white evaluation form. If you could finish, fill out before the end of tonight and get that back to uh, Melissa and myself so we can uh, hear what you learned and keep developing this presentation. I've presented this five times this fall, about 15 times altogether. We keep changing it to make it better. So jumping into the National Study on Youth and Religion, NSYR for short, I'm going to throw a lot of information at you tonight because there's a lot of information here and you look like a smart group. So hang in there with me. This has a, a longitudinal study, multi-year study, the first wave, 2001-2005. Here's Dr. Christian Smith, then at the University of North Carolina, who led the study. Over 3,000 teens aged 3 to 13 to 17, a cross-section of American teens, all religions, all socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds. He wanted to find out what is going on in the faith life of teens. So what he did was he had hour-long interviews with both teens and parents with a three-hour face-to-face follow-up with a smaller sample of those teens. The Catholic slice of this was 816. We make up 23 to 25% of the whole population in our country, depending on when the census was taken. This continues to, uh, to go. Uh, the study, the first wave came out with a report called Soul Searching in 2005. If you like dense books, I could recommend it. Uh, that was the study on the ages 13 to 17. He then did the second wave of study when these same teens became 18 to 23. His second book, Souls in Transition, came out in 2009. I'm still trying to read that one. Both excellent books, though. So what, what is this uh, NSYR? Well, it's never done before. First-time study. Very meticulous, very credible, and a wake-up call for anyone who cares about the faith of young people. So churches across the country have really been paying attention to this. I found out about it probably in 2007 and was trained to start giving presentation. You will think, I think you will find that uh, this confirms much of what we believe, but it also challenges some assumptions that we have about the current generation. So let me ask you, let's have you vote before we show you what the study says. When it comes to faith, most teens are A, rebellious against the faith of their parents, or B, consider their parents' religious practices to be old-fashioned, not for me, or C, pretty much follow the faith of their parents. So we got to vote. Now, how many say A, rebel against the faith of their parents? How many say B, it's old-fashioned, not for me? And how many say C, pretty much follow the faith of their parents? Okay, we have a split group here tonight. The study found C, this particular cross-section, this generation, pretty much follows the faith of their parents. In fact, this was one of the surprises that contrary to popular assumptions of many youth ministers, many in the media, this Teen, this generation is exceedingly conventional. They're not rebellious as a whole. The vast majority are quite content 
to follow in their parents' footsteps. They are different than the previous two generations. The, my generation, the, the, boom, the boom generation, that was all about protesting and rejecting and challenging what the institutions had to offer. And then, then the Xers, who were more content to disconnect and be independent of, of all of that, this group has taken a turn back toward embracing our institutions, including our faith. Kind of interesting. It was kind of a surprise for many. Particularly if you look around the general age of ministers, clergy, religious, or pastoral ministers in the diocese, most of us, earlier generations, not necessarily in tune with this generation. So it makes us think. They're, most of them are happy to go along, to get along. Most three-quarters will call themselves Christians. Most are positive about their uh, faith. And hardly any say that they are spiritual but not religious. The spiritual seekers that get all the press, hardly any in that study would describe themselves that way. Most of them, though, suffer from benign whatever. They just go along to get along. The later study, 2009, of the young adults, said that in the merging adult years, there's a modest growth of spiritual but not religious, so there are more of them, but it's still a fairly small minority. It's not the majority that the media would make you think is out there. Second, in terms of positive life outcomes, this is another finding. Highly religious teens. What do we mean by that? Well, this is how they define highly religious. Highly religious teens regularly attend religious service, have a personal commitment to God, are involved in a youth group, um, are involved in mission trips, they pray, they read the Bible. Those are highly religious. Positive life outcomes, what do they mean? How often do these teens get into trouble? How are their grades? How often do they use drugs or alcohol? How emotionally mature are they? How hopeful? How moral are they? These are the things that were measured and then correlated. So, based on those two groupings, highly religious teens, positive life outcomes, would you say that the highly religious are about the same as other teens, better or worse? How many say A, about the same? How many say B, better? And how many say worse? And the study found highly religious teens on almost all these measures, there is a measurable difference. So religion does make a difference. How so? Well, there is a significant association between their practice and commitment on even the older, less religious young adult group. It's, it stays on. So the, the evidence from this study, the measurable evidence, says that religious faith and practice, I'll use his words, exert significant, positive, direct, and indirect influences on the lives of teens and young adults, helping them to be healthier, more engaged, living more promising, constructive lives. So what your mom and dad told you is true. Religion's good for you. The scientists have found this out. 
I should make a caution here, though. Social science research is what they call correlated. It's not like cause and effect, but these things tend to be associated with one another. So why do I say that? Well, you can have a highly religious teen who does get in trouble, who does fail. It's not a 100% guarantee. And you also have non-highly religious teens who do well. But as a group, statistics apply to the groups, religion really makes a difference. So here's an example they found out. Youth who participate in at least one retreat, rally, conference, or mission trip. This is a picture from the 2009 National Catholic Youth Conference in Kansas City, which uh, I was able to attend. 20,000 young Catholics from around the country. Uh, An event like that, they report being significantly closer to God. Here's some of our young people from our parish. They report religion plays an important part in shaping their daily life. Reading the Bible is something they do significantly more than others who don't do these type of activities. So what does this tell us? Opportunities for retreats, for service, for mission trips, for conferences matter. And the more these are available, the more likely teens will become religiously engaged and invested, particularly this generation, from the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. That's what the research is suggesting. This is what else the research showed, though. The majority of teens are not coming. Only one in four attend a retreat or a conference or a a mission trip or something like that. So while we have a clear correlation here, what we're finding is we're not getting them there, so they don't benefit as they could. A third finding, compared to all the other things that teens do, the position on the calendar, on the schedule of religion is stronger, weaker, or about the same for teens. What would you say? Stronger, weaker, about the same. And what the study found is it's significantly weaker. So back to the previous finding. Even though these religious activities benefit, it's not a priority in most teens' schedules. So when forced to choose between religion and other activities, typically they will choose other activities. And those decisions are powerfully shaped by numerous forces in our culture. So we got a problem here. If you look at life as a piece of pie, religion, God, faith, has an increasingly smaller piece of pie in our teens' lives. As my youth minister in North Olmsted, St. Clarence in North Olmsted said, in his, he has to deal with this reality. For his teens, the soccer coach has more moral authority than the parish priest. It's a problem. How did we let this happen 
that a coach has more influence on the time and the decisions of our young people than our religious leaders. He's got to deal with that, but it makes it much harder to get young people to religious activities. A fourth findings. How are we as Catholics doing compared to other religions and denominations? Are we doing better than most, about the same, or worse? How many say better than most? Catholic pride, I like that. How about B, about the same as most? Okay. We're not better than the others. How many say worse than most others? Oh, boy. The study found we are doing worse. Napoleon Dynamite, <laughs> a Mormon, are doing the best. Followed by conservative Protestants, black Protestants, mainline Protestants, we're number five. At least we're doing better than the non-religious. <laughs> but this was a real wake-up call for those of us who are doing religious uh, ministry with young people. We've invested so much in schools and programs. Why are we doing, well, as the kids would call this, an epic fail? Why are we having an epic fail? In fact, this is what uh, Dr. Smith found. Catholics, nearly one quarter of the population, consistently scored lower on almost all measures of religiosity, 5 to 25% points lower than these other groups. Another finding, when it comes to talking about faith and beliefs, most Americans, would you say, are about their faith talking, and you know teens, they can talk a lot about a lot of things. And if they can text about them too, if they know something, they can really talk about it. How are they with faith? Remarkably articulate, remarkably inarticulate, or moderately articulate? So A, remarkably articulate, B, moderately articulate, C, remarkably inarticulate. You're right. Even though this generation is probably more articulate than any other when it comes to faith, not, not, well, as he says, most have a difficult to impossible time explaining what they believe, what their beliefs mean, what this means for how they live their lives. Others can talk about their faith, but their minor beliefs, secondary beliefs, or they're positively heretical. They're not what their church believes, but somehow they're getting an idea that isn't what their denomination stands for. So we have a real problem in this area of faith. Particularly Catholic teens, they found, had a hard time putting into words what our faith means. Why would you say that is? And I would like you at this point to take a break and find a couple other people to talk to and talk about this. Why is it that Catholics are having such a hard time, Catholic teens, in being religious and talking about their faith? I'd like you to come back to the large group, and would somebody be willing to uh, venture an opinion here, a diagnosis? Give me one reason why.
Back here? Yes. Not a priority. Okay, so it's not being made a priority, and then if it's not talked about at home, how can you be confident or articulate your faith? Okay. What else? Anything else out there? Yes, sir. Busyness and technology can become a barrier. Okay. Any, uh, anything else? Way back there. Ah. Yeah, so in this pluralistic society, it is, it's risky to talk about your faith. In fact, society has rules that say you shouldn't be talking about your private beliefs. Kids feel those. Uh-huh. Wow. So, but, so you're saying faith is a powerful force in any home, including a foster home. All, by the way, all these reasons that you name are borne out by the research. Let me show you what uh, the researchers, remember these are sociologists, how they framed things. Why are Catholic teens doing poorly? Well, first of all, our schools and PSR can't function the way they used to. They used to be very effective in educating and evangelizing youth. They can't do it anymore because things have changed. There's a lower level of investment in youth ministry at both the parish and diocesan level. We're doing many things, but we have not made this a priority in most parishes. In fact, the study found only one in five Catholic parishes had a full-time youth minister. So a much lower number of teens, Catholic teens, had a chance for activities. Catholic teens also, as been said, reflect the low levels of their parents' religiosity and practice. And finally, we become successful. Upward mobility and mainstream acculturation have worked, but in the process, we've lost the vitality of the faith that was there in past generations. When your church was built back in the 50s, it was this way. Families extended, connected, and Catholic. Neighborhoods were neighborhoods. People talked to one another. Everyone knew what was going on, looked out for one another's kids. The media was not anti-Christian. They reinforced religious values of our Judeo-Christian culture. The local parish was at the center of many Catholics' lives. So religious education only had to impart some cognitive knowledge and language that was already being lived in all these other ways. Today, though, all of these are disconnected. We become fragmented in the last 50 years. So families... Very different. We become much more no mobile and insulated. So I don't know what your neighborhood is like, but I don't talk to my neighbors very much unless there's like a blackout. <laughs> when we 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 have to come out and talk to one another. Uh, so communities tend to be more virtual, more online, more mobile. Uh, but not next door. Uh, the public schools have made it a point to suppress religious dialogue because they don't want to offend anyone. They don't want to violate anybody's rights, but it has had the effect of suppressing religion, and we don't learn about religion. And the local parish, well, the local parish has 
suffered from the mobility and the success of doing many other things. We go out into the world, but I don't know. It's like we've become more of the world. You know, the gospel says, be in the world, not of it. We've gone in the world and become of it. So there's a tension here. Um, So uh, I guess it would be accurate to say that the parish now is responsible to do the work that all six institutions used to do. And it's just overwhelming. So we're not trying to be nostalgic. You can't go back to the 50s. But we have to realize the ground has shifted. We have to shift. So to put this in uh, a graphic, this is the way it used to be. The interconnection of six different social institutions. This is the way it is now. And it just makes it a lot harder to run the race, a lot harder for our young people to absorb what used to be more like osmosis for like my folks in my earliest years. A historian from Notre Dame, Dr. Appleby, said this, No previous generation of American Catholics inherited so little of the content and sensibility of the faith from their parents as have today's youth. And some of that is because some of our parents inherited less from their parents. So there's a multi-generational effect happening, impacting our faith and ability to hand it on. The researchers also found something else interesting. They found a new type of faith that has become kind of a common denomination among all teens. And I'm going to play a little clip. It's called, he calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. God wants us to be nice, moralistic. God wants us to feel good, therapeutic. And deism, God keeps his distance unless there's a problem. I'm going to play from the study, Dr. Smith and some of his teens he interviewed. Teens can be articulate, uh, but when it came to their religious faith, beliefs, uh, most were totally at sea. Uh, they couldn't articulate hardly anything that they believed. Again, it just seemed to be uh, something they took for granted. It was just in the background. And for some teenagers, our questions about, you know, what, what are your religious beliefs seemed to be the first time that any adult had ever asked them, what do you believe? God require of us? It's not like he requires, he just would like us to follow him, follow in his footsteps, do the right thing, but everybody's going to make a mistake, but that's what the good thing about God is, is you can ask for forgiveness and he'll forgive you right then and there. What does Jesus have to do with any of this? What do you think about Jesus? I think, I don't know. Um, 
Catholic therapeutic deists, uh, not Catholic, not Presbyterian, not Jewish. The God of Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, I say in the book, is something like a combination of uh, a divine butler and cosmic therapist. He takes care of your problems, he helps you to work out your difficulties, and doesn't get too uh, personally involved in the meanwhile. Purpose of life seems very vague to me. It doesn't really seem to have a purpose yet, but then again, it turned for all I'm knowing. Really had no clue what she is to live life to the fullest. And Moralistic Therapeutic Deism basically believes uh, sure, God exists, it's theistic, God created the world, God orders the world morally. People should be nice and fair and friendly, but the purpose of life is to be happy, be satisfied, that's what it's really about. Uh, that God doesn't need to be very involved in one's life, God can sort of be off at a distance, hence the deism. Uh, except when one gets into trouble or has problems or needs something solved, then one can call on God and God will sort of hop to it. And teens have an immense amount of faith that God solves their problems. He fixes their troubles, and he makes life work better. He makes them happier. Well, I think God's plan for us is uh, he bases his plan on uh, happiness and joy. And through that, he makes our lives challenging. God is, is everything, like I said. Anyway, um, what I think God wants for me is to get married, because... He wants me to stay a virgin and get married, have, and then just have my beautiful life. I don't know. I guess sometimes, in times of need, everyone, like, like their backup plan is God almost. Like, when they find nothing else, they'll just they'll pray or whatever. And I guess I can do that sometimes, but most of the time it's just kind of like, there can't be a God, because why would I feel like this? But my belief right now in God is that he is around, um... Sometimes he can't change what goes on, but he can help. I like politics a lot, and I'm a very liberal person, and so I just don't like being a part of a church that I don't like, that doesn't want gay people to get married, because I don't see it as a religious issue. I see it as it's two people, let them be happy. And so I have a hard time being in a place like that where you put rules and stuff that make people unhappy. God, he, it's not really for me to say, but the gist of it, um, he wants the best that we can offer. I mean, uh, the best to your ability. Like, if you're only given so much, you're only required so much. If you're given a lot, then you require a lot. God wants us to be happy and to live right. Religious traditions are, from my perspective, are really being colonized and corroded from the inside out by moralistic therapeutic deism, and that is, I, as a sociologist, I am uh, skeptical of what is going to be the fiber, the, the theological content, or the, the intellectual substance of beliefs and practices of people a generation hence. It seems to me that many social forces are basically converging to sort of watered-down religious faith of all different sorts, so that you no longer have distinctively Catholic and Jewish and, and Muslim and and Wesleyan or whatever, you just have this sort of bland mush of be nice, call on God when you need him. And that is not what these religious traditions really believe. You know, I've come to think that in our culture, increasingly, the language of faith is like a second language. It's like Spanish or French or German. It's not a primary language that people learn and speak. And we know about second languages that 
Yeah, you don't just pick it up by osmosis. You you know you need to be around people that speak it. You need to be instructed in it. You need to have practice talking in it. And I think one of the things that that was clear you know, in what we found is that uh, very few adolescents are having much uh, practice learning to speak their second language of faith. A very powerful clip of a larger 20-minute DVD. It is available out there. Now, if I could get this next, there it is. Next slide describes the MTD Creed. There's a God who watches over the world from a distance. God wants people to be nice and good and fair. The goal in life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. God only gets involved when needed to resolve a problem, and finally good people go to heaven when they die. I have two questions for you to discuss. One, what's good about this? This isn't all bad. So what's good about it? The second question is, what's missing that our Catholic faith believes that this, this is not communicating? So, talks amongst yourselves. <laughs> what's good about this, but then what's missing? And then we'll, we'll bring it back to the group. Okay, I'm going to invite us to come back to the large group again. And again, I hope we're beginning this conversation tonight. I hope you will continue. I think this is a real important finding of this study. So first of all, could you give me one thing that's good about this, more MTD. What's one good thing about it? They still believe in God. With growing agnostic and atheism that's becoming more uh, vocal, it's, I'm glad that the majority of our kids, our teens, still have a belief in God. That's something distinctive about America. What's something else that's good about this? Yes. Yeah, I think most parents want their kids to be nice and fair and good. I mean, that's, that's a good baseline. So there's something good about that. What else? Yes. So to feel good about yourself, if you, if you learn that that comes from being good to others, that could possibly be a motivation. Okay, what else? Anything good about this? I think it's a good thing that most teens believe that God will help them solve their problems. We believe that. And also that they believe in heaven. And want to go there. I think those are good. But what's missing? Tell me one thing that's missing from this religious worldview. Anyone? Father? No accountability. No accountability, meaning? Explain why you do what you do. Okay. Uh, in the face of, of the consequences. All right, so it's kind of nebulous. What is good? What isn't good? You know, You're looking for an easy way out. Easy way out. Tell me more. What do you mean by that? If I like a religion, I belong to that religion. If the religion says do this, and I don't want to do it, it's the wrong religion. Ah, so they're not letting. There's no rules beyond what I want. Basically, what you're saying. Worthwhile's got organization. Okay, so it lacks organization and rules. Back here. Where are the moral teachings, the Ten Commandments, right? What is right and wrong? Is, is it just what it feels good? 
Yeah, it is kind of a feel-good religion. What else? I'm not going to let Father do all the answers here. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very me-centered. Yeah, it's all about me. Yeah. What about what does God think? What about what others need? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the, the biblical God is not distant. God is very personal, closer to us than our breath. Became one of us, right? What else is missing? Yes. So we have a whole generation of teens and maybe their parents who don't have what we know from Re- Revelation and what's been handed on by generations about what is true, what is right, what is fair, what is good, who is God. There's a lot to learn that they're not learning. What did the study say? What's missing? It's not Catholic or Christian or any religion. It's like he said, watered down, bland mush. It's feel good religion without demands or challenges. It's self centered. What am I going to get out of it? Which is the opposite of what Jesus taught us. And it lacks community. There's no need to come together to worship, to organize to work for justice, to serve others. No need for sacraments, because sacraments are about a community of faith and God, the body of Christ. So is it any surprise that our religious attendance is going down as MTD becomes the main religion in our culture? Because if it's about me and God, I don't need a church. I can call on God when I need him, but the rest of the time I'll just kind of go along, get along. This really names a big challenge that we have, and not just us. So how do we transform MTD or benign whateverism? How do we transform this back into Catholicism? Well, let's look at this. What is the most crucial element impacting the faith life of teens today? Is it those combined cultural forces of media and technology? Is it the faith life of the parents? Or is it the experience of the parish or school? How many say it's the negative forces of media and technology? We certainly have a big impact from those. How many say the faith life of the parents? How many say the experience of the parish or the school? The finding was, as most of you said, it is the faith life of the parents. And now we're going to hear another little video clip of Dr. Smith and his fellow researcher talking about this. A lot of people ask me uh, what factors are most important in shaping a strong religious faith among teenagers. And uh, without a doubt, there's no question, the most important factor is strong religious faith of the teenager's parents. Parents... Clearly, have immense influence in informing teenagers' lives, even if they themselves have a hard time seeing that. What we think doesn't work very well is parents who drop their kids off at church, but rather parents who they themselves are involved in this lifestyle and embracing that as well. And when you find a teenager who is 
serious and committed to their religious faith, almost invariably you find parents who are serious and committed to their religious faith, who are intentional about it. Uh, teenagers learn um, to read the Bible when their parents read the Bible. In our interviews, we found that teens who had supportive parents, parents who were involved in their lives, parents who were modeling for them, tended to be a lot more successful in their lives, less likely to be in trouble, less likely to be involved in problematic behaviors. So family really made a big difference. And more than just to support a family, parents who took seriously what they were teaching their children. I say the rule of thumb for adults trying to think about how their teens are going to turn out is uh, we'll get what we are, which puts power in the hands of parents, but also responsibility. Another factor besides parents is the kind of congregation that they go to. If it's compelling, if it's alive, if it reaches out to teenagers, if it prioritizes young people, it's just immensely important. There are so many other institutions and factors pulling a teenager's attention and time and energy. So, a couple images that were used from this study is we get what we are. That most American youth of this generation faithfully mirror our goals, our practices, our problems, our concerns, because that's the world that they're living in every day. So the biggest influence is the faith life of the parents. And the best predictor is, if you want to know how a teen's faith is going to look like when they're a young adult, look at their parents, because we are emulating them. Uh, as an example, I can hold up one of these. The cell phone, I have one, my kids wanted it. Another example, I can't find them right now, the car keys. My son turned 15 and a half and told me we got to go get my temps. We value mobility in cars, right? He was ready for that. So what we value, much more likely they're going to value. So we get what we are. They are mirrors to us and they're barometers of what's right and wrong in the culture. So look in the mirror if we want to see what's going on. Where is MTD being taught? Probably from us, too. We found in our parish, when we uh, before we showed this to the adults, we showed it to the kids and asked them to answer some of these questions. And we found out MTD is alive and well in our teens in uh, St. Clarence Parish. A few of them could talk about putting the words our faith and what we believe. Not very many. Good kids. Love God, but not very articulate in their faith. And when we showed this to the parents and asked, well, what are we going to do about this? Before we showed what the clip I just showed you, 25 of our best, most active parents had something for father to do, for the pastoral minister to do, for the youth minister to do, for the music minister to do. And then I played this clip by Dr. Smith that said, it's the parents, and their jaws went, oh, we don't know how to do this. This is the problem. We do need the support of the parish, but no matter how good the parish is, without the parents practicing the faith, it just doesn't get handed on. When you have parents living the faith and then being supported by the parents, that's a combination that 
even in this highly secular age, we're finding there's a minority of teens and young adults who are strong and articulate in their faith, but it's only like 15%. Wouldn't it be nice to up that up a little bit? So this has been confirmed, this finding in the later study, that strong parental religion during the teen years consistently is very important, a predictor of the young adult spirituality. It's not as strong, but it's still strong. So we have good news and bad news. The good news, the kids today aren't rebellious. They're open, and they're mirroring our practices of faith. The bad news is they're mirroring our practices. (laughs) The good news is the programs we do offer our youth does engage and help them not only in their faith life, but the rest of life. The bad news is the programs alone can't do it, and most kids aren't participating, most teens. There's this deal that most families still make around confirmation. When do you do confirmation here? Eighth grade. This is the deal. I, I'll say it. I'll sing it in a song. Only this I want: confirmation. No more class or mass. After this, you're finally done. Right? We look at it as graduation, and what do we know? That is what's working. Kids feel like I'm done now. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to go to learn any more about my faith because my folks don't expect me to, and they don't. That's what we're getting. We have to change that program. Confirmation, I mean, that, that idea. Confirmation is initiation. We need to continue to make faith a priority for our teens if there's a chance that it's going to get passed on. So parents are powerful. The church wants to support us. But for our, some decades now, we've all been dropping the baton. So, connecting these dots... If our youth are not hostile or rebellious, if they mirror our practices, what do we have to do to make sure they have faith? Tell me. They have to show up. What else? We have to authentically model it. And we can. And when we do, it has a big impact. One of the, he said over and over in his book, they were just struck with the fact that they were the first adults to talk to these kids about their faith. It wasn't a priority. We need to be doing much more before because it's, it's too late, six months or a year before. There's, there's so much more that has to be learned about what it means to be a faith-filled person, a generous and love, a committed person. You have to learn that, and now you have to commit to it. Boy. That's something you don't learn in a six-month, six-week course. Same with confirmation. It cannot teach the Catholic faith. It can teach about it. But we have so much more to do. Uh, He also said this is what they found with adults. Adults have this idea about teens. They are alien beings. They don't want to talk to us. I better not push religion on them. His findings are All the opposite. What's the number one complaint that one of the biggest complaints that kids had about their parents? (laughs) We never have time. And he asked why. And they said, we don't know. We don't know how to ask for that. 
The second thing uh, that they found was that, uh, gosh, if you will talk in a comfortable way like you do about other things, we have found out, my wife and I, in our youth ministry, young people are smart. They have a lot of great questions, a lot of great insights. They need an opportunity to talk about their faith, to learn about it. So what are we going to do with this? Well... The challenge in our secular media technology-driven age is older Catholics must be restored to, younger Catholics introduced to Catholicism as a comprehensive way of life. That's the way you run the race and hand on the faith. It can't be done in a classroom only. That's one component. Can't be this little piece of the pie. It's got to be a bigger place at the table every day of the week. So there's a time for change in our homes, parishes, schools, how we hand on our faith. this point, a break. Should we take a break? Uh, it's 5 to 8. Can we take about a 7-minute break? And then we'll finish up. Maybe we can get you out early tonight. But do come back because we now we have to work on some answers here. Well, welcome back, everybody. Every time I do this presentation... I do feel some good old Catholic guilt as a parent because I recognize there are things that I could have done better that I didn't attend to. And I have to remind myself that uh, I'm not done being a parent. There's still, I'm still running this race. And uh, as another uh, wise uh, woman grandmother said at another uh, gathering like this, she said, unlike those Olympians, if you drop the baton, you can pick it up again. It's not just one lap around. This is a generational race. So if you're feeling some guilt, that's okay. That says that you care, that you have a conscience, that you, you know like me that we have a responsibility to hand our faith on. And so keep trying, but also recognize that all we can do is hand the baton. They have to take it. We can't make them take it. But we can pray like St. Monica that eventually the Lord will work like he did in Augustine's life, that famous sinner (laughs) who eventually became a great saint because he eventually took that baton of faith. So... Don't give up. Let's talk about what are some things we can do about this. Well, picking up where we left off. If we have been undermined by our culture, then we need to reclaim what makes us different, what makes us Catholic, Christian and Catholic, and be in but not of the mainstream culture. And we need to ask ourselves, do we want... Catholicism, or do we want moralistic, therapeutic deism? Because honestly, talking to some others, we've been formed with that, and that's, at an emotional level, sometimes more of what we feel than the deeper parts of our Catholic faith. If we want more than MTD, we're going to have to work for it and make it a priority. If the teens reflect low levels of parent religiosity, then the adults need to be actively update their own faith and are going to need help from their parish, right? And then hand that on to the kids. But we have to be passionate and authentic about it. 
because I bet the young people here can tell you if you're doing this because it's good for them, that only goes so far. If they see that you believe because you believe and it's good for you, they're going to be much more open to something that's real. That's a question I asked when I was a junior in high school. I was at Mass every week, listened to the homilies, listened to the gospel. I said, do these people really believe this? Because I can't tell in the parking lot. <laughs> people are leaving and not acting any differently. I seriously had a crisis of faith. And I started asking a lot of questions. Unfortunately, met some people who really believed. At our parish and diocesan level, we really need to start prioritizing our young people. That's one of the reasons why the marriage and family office, the youth and young adult office, the catechetical office are all doing these presentations to try to engage all of us in making, handing on the faith to particularly our teens, younger children as well, and our young adults. Let's make this a priority. We have to invest time, space, and money. We can't just hope. And build youth-friendly parishes. So, if our conventional models can't do what they used to do, then we can't be doing business as usual. Because what did Einstein tell us? If you do the same thing you've always done and expect a different result, that's the, diff that's the definition of insanity. We're going, don't you feel a little crazy sometimes? <laughs> yeah, we got to do something different here. So this is what we've talked about in uh, our uh, uh, planning sessions. We think business as usual looks like this, that people who come to mass, come to parish programs, are consumers looking to the producer to provide them with excellent goods and services. Because we're American consumers, right? We want a good deal. So we want something that's efficient, low cost, and it's going to taste good. So here we have it. The parents and youth driving up to the parish. Father, you better have a good homily. We wish that music was better. We wish that uh, Mass was shorter. We wish you didn't keep us so long at these parish gatherings. we got other things to do. Well, there's truth in that. We don't want to waste people's time. But yet at the same time, this doesn't work with faith. You cannot hand on faith, particularly Catholicism, in an efficient, low-cost way. What do you get? MTD. <laughs> so... If parish is seen as a provider, you have all these different disconnected programs and parents and their youth as consumers, hoping that this religion will be good for their kids someday. That's business as usual. And we know, we've known for a while, and now the sociologist is telling us, that doesn't work, people. So what if we looked at it this way, the family perspective? Families are primary. And all these other things that the parish is doing helps encourage, equip, and empower families to live the faith and hand it on.
I think I, I like this particular Generations of Faith style program because it's more like this. We're giving you home kits. We're giving you information so that it's not just talked about here, but it gives you something practical that helps you live your faith because faith is a living relationship with God and with one another. There was a movie that came out a year ago by a pretty committed atheist talking about the end of the world, 2012, and it was a a cataclysmic movie about the end of the world, and he took great joy in bringing down religious icons. What if, though, it prompts a question, what if there were no parishes? What would you do? And I'm going to throw that out for your your conversation here. If this depended on you and your family, that Father was arrested and taken away along with the rest of the clergy, we could no longer gather for Eucharist, what would you do to hand on the faith? I'm going to tell you a story. It's an amazing story that I didn't know about until a little over a year ago about this actually has happened in modern times. But what we're getting at here is the things that you're saying we need to do if we would do those in addition to the sacraments, the Eucharist, the the parish and the diocese, what a vibrant church we would be. But if we don't do these things, will we survive? So do you know the story of the Japanese church? St. Francis Xavier came to that country back in the 16th century, and Catholicism started spreading like wildfire. There were a couple hundred thousand Catholics there within 30 years. And the shoguns got very alarmed and decided we have to stop this. They banished the clergy. They persecuted people. They would take a, a holy card of the Holy Family or, or the, the crucifix, drop it on the ground in these Catholic families, and say, denounce your faith. Step on that. And if they wouldn't, they would be either tortured or crucified. So thousands were killed. And, and the church was banished. In 1865, the Japanese opened up the country to the West again, and European uh, missionaries came of all faith. And uh, there was a priest, a European priest, who opened, uh, celebrated Mass for the first time in 230 years there, almost 250 years. And some peasants came up to him. Some peasant women came up to him after Mass and wanted to know... Are you an unmarried priest from Rome? Did the Pope send you? And he said, well, yes, I am. Who are you? And they said, we're Catholic. We have been waiting for you to come. And he was amazed. How did your faith survive? You haven't had Eucharist for over 200 years here. You know what they told him? Exactly what you said. Not only did people gather to pray underground, but they also, we can baptize they continued to baptize children. They also, we can marry each other. So couples professed their commitment in the Lord to one another. And marriage family survived through those two sacraments for over 250 years. And they found tens of thousands of Catholic families were still alive. But Pope Pius was at the ninth declared it a miracle. Why am I telling you this? Because the faith is that resilient if families will practice it. 
we, no matter what's coming, Jesus promised the church is going to survive. But you do have a choice. There were many that did uh, recant, you know, give up their faith. Many more were killed, but the church survived. There were many martyrs. So that's the church of the 26 martyrs there. So I was, I didn't know this, but our Catholic church near Nagasaki in Japan. And now there's 11 dioceses there. So the church is growing again. Anyway. We're here in America. We're troubled with something else. Affluence, materialism, too much religious freedom maybe. If we want our kids to have faith, let me give you some suggestions to start thinking systematically about this. Start with the first commandment. Make God number one. What is the first commandment? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods. Until God becomes number one in our priorities, we're not going to make big progress. So what does this translate into? Making prayer, talking about God and faith, Christian service, Sunday worship. These are all regular, normal, non-negotiable parts of family life. So in my, in my family, that's the way it was. My dad made it real clear. We owe God our lives and we owe God our thanks and praise. One hour a week is not too much, and there's no question you're going to do that. So I knew that. Even when I was not knowing if I believed in God in high school, I didn't dare violate that rule because that was our family rule. But we also did other things in our home. We prayed every day. We prayed at meals. We did the rosary. You know, we, we had God as part of our life. So I told my kids when they did not want to go we weren't able to send them to a Catholic high school. Uh, you know, their mom was gone. I was worried, but I said this. Well, if you're not going to Catholic high school, then this is the deal. We still go to church every, every Sunday, and you will be involved in youth ministry. They agreed. And they were, because I was firm. Just like you don't tell me you, can't, you don't want to go to school today, there's there's no negotiating that. There's no negotiating Sunday Mass. I don't know many Catholic parents of my generation that make it a priority like that. They don't want to have a fight about religion. It's a priority. You fight for things that are important for you. So, kids, I hope I'm not upsetting you by telling your folks to do this, but this is good. Yes, and that's what the researcher found. He said he found that we insist that young people do all sorts of things, but it comes to faith, oh, we don't want to push that too hard. We don't want to force them. We don't want to be fanatical. Anything that has value, parents insist that that's going to happen. That's all I'm saying. I don't see how we get beyond where we're going. And I'm not, I'm, I'm an idealist, but I'm a realist here. There are lots of parents that aren't ready to make that step. But I'm asking you, to, if you're a parent, you have some authority yet, make that commitment. But not to punish, but to say this is so important to us, we're going to make this worth our while. It's not a punishment. It's because it's the right thing. We owe God, God and God will bless us. How about this? Setting measurable spiritual goal for your kids and make sure they know what they are. So what measurable goals? We go to weekly Mass. Twice a year we go to the dentist, twice a year we go to confession, whether you're in moral sin or not. 
<laughs> your soul decides, your soul needs a checkup as much as your teeth does, do, right? That was, I'm just telling you some of the, the goals we set. We pray at meals regularly, even at restaurants. Oh, my kids are so embarrassed. <laughs> we didn't make a big deal about it, but we don't leave our faith at home. Also, how about this? A uh, Well, anyway, spiritual goals, right? We make sure the vaccinations, the 12-year-old, 7th grade shots are up to date, right? We make sure that if braces are needed, we get the braces. Gosh, if you're playing an instrument, you better be practicing. If you've got a sport, you're going to show up at practice there. These are things that we don't even think about with faith. We have to. We have to make them practical and measurable. Here's another one. Both my kids, before they went to college, talked about the idea of what is God, what do you think God's calling you to in life? Ask the question, God, what do you want me to do? And then pray about the decision, talk about the pros and cons. And then I told both my kids this. I said, you know what? I you both, well, first I start with my daughter. She wanted to go into engineering. And I said, great, you have the aptitude. God's given you the talent to do this. I hope you get a great education. I hope that you make lots of money, have a great career. I hope you support your dad in retirement because I'm going to need it. <laughs> she laughed. But then I said, but if you lose your faith along the way, I'll consider it all a loss. Because the only thing that lasts eternally is your faith. Your degree and your career and your money won't. Please, I can't decide for you, but I'm asking you, go to Mass. Join Newman Campus Ministry. So we met the Newman Campus Minister at Case. Fortunately, they're very friendly young people. My daughter loves spaghetti. They brought her to the spaghetti dinner there, and she's been going to Mass for three years, at least. I, the, the Newman magazine that came out had all sorts of pictures. She was in two of them, so I know she at least won twice. <laughs> this is what I'm saying, that if I would have just not had that conversation and not said this is important and here's why, probably there's a much higher chance that like the 85 to 90 percent of their peers, they wouldn't be going to church. My son and down in Cincinnati, he's involved in Newman down there, too. I don't I'm saying it's possible, even with what they've what they've had to deal with in their life. They have found faith to be real and meaningful for them. I don't know if they'll continue. I pray that they do. We still talk about faith. So. Authentic faith, it's not just for the good of the kids, it's because it's how we're made. We're made for God. And let's act that way, live that way, and teach our kids that. What about prayer and worship? Daily prayer at meals, morning, bedtime, special occasions, the rosary. And you know what I'm finding? You know, uh, we did it growing up, but then, I, I don't know, it fell out of the habit of the rosary, but we introduced the rosary to our youth group. And a bunch of them started meeting to say the rosary. This is new to them. They didn't, Eucharistic adoration, they didn't know about it. We taught what it is, invited them to do it. My son loves the Eucharistic adoration. Now, I didn't teach it to him, the youth group did. But what I'm saying is, these are ways to pray that, wow, they're life-giving. We can do this. What about the Advent wreath? Anyone do that at home? 
we did not growing up, but uh, Barb and I, my first wife and I, started the Advent wreath when the kids were young. And they still, they put it up this weekend when they were home from college. We still do the Advent wreath. We have a special prayer uh, to go along with it. It's, it's something that's easily done once you start it. You, and you have to have a ritual. Again, a measurable goal. So we have something in Lent. We would grow, when the kids were young, we would wear a cross. And I remember this from Stations of the Cross. We adore you, O Christ, and we praise you. Because by your holy cross you have redeemed the... We would say that before the blessed soul, Lord, during, during Lent. Uh, you can come up with your own things. What I'm saying is we have all this great stuff that we can just work into the, the routines of our life. Sunday Mass, as I said, is essential. How about blessing your children? This I give my dad credit. I didn't realize how important this was until I became 20 and older. He used to bless us when we went to bed or when we went to school or when he'd see us. He'd trace us on a cross and he'd say, God bless you or God loves you or I love you. He would say something like that many times a week. And I thought nothing of it because that's just what he did. I later found out when I became a pastoral minister that what do we do at baptism? The priest traces the sign of cross, claims that child through Christ, and invites the parents and godparents to do it. My dad never stopped. So I made sure at the, at the baptism of our kids that I never stopped. So I've done the same thing. I hit them going out the door, you know, on the back, you know, as they're running out the door. God bless you. Keep you safe. Bring you home. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have to be quite as reverent as church, but it does need to come from our deep faith. You can do that with your kids. Now, if they're older, if they're teens already, uh, they might think you are a little overly fanatical if you suddenly start it. But you can ask, you can tell them, I would like to start blessing you because my role as a parent is to give you a blessing. We don't bless them. They're going to look for it from somebody else. Easy to do. Teach them prayers and how to pray. You know, again, only about 12% of families are having meals and prayer on a regular basis. I bet most of us did that growing up, us older folks. Let's, if we haven't been doing that, turn off the TV, turn off the phones, turn off the computer, Take some time, say a prayer, and share a meal with one another. What about a faith-friendly home environment? Are there any religious symbols in art that say we're a Christian or Catholic home? Is there a crucifix anywhere? A Last Supper picture? Anyone have that? Sacred Heart picture? Wonderful. But I mentioned this last January at a parish. I went back. More parents came this time, and there was a repeat. Father came in. He said... I heard you say that, and I went home, and we had nothing. He said, we have stuff there now. Again, making the environment reflect our faith. It's not, once we set it up and explain it, it shapes us. How about observing the liturgical calendar and seasons, like what I mentioned, the Advent wreath, Lent, what about a candle for Easter, palms for from palm sunday bring them home and i do like my mom did i put them by the crucifix right we can do those things also uh, liturgical training publications puts out a calendar liturgical calendar 
we would get one every year and then make sure we knew what season we're in and the feast days. And it's easy to find if you really want to go overboard. I never got into this. I'm a little guilty about this. What about saints? Learning about our, our, our Hall of Fame. You don't have to do them all, but now and then. What about observing um, anniversaries like baptisms? remembering when kids were baptized or if we're married, uh, honoring our spouse, make sure the kids know about our wedding anniversary. What about, is there any faith on TV or in the music we listen to? There's plenty of it out there, but do we include it? How about, uh, is God and faith in our conversations, our verbal environment? Again, our culture tells us don't talk about this. This is personal stuff. But the young people where faith was just a normal part of conversation are more articulate and alive in their faith. Also, there's a big rule in my home growing up, second commandment, God's name is holy. So that's still the rule in our home, but I know many homes that's not the case. You might want to ask yourself, how are we using the, the Lord's name? Make a change if we need to. And what about if you, how many have Facebook accounts? I don't yet. <laughs> my kids and uh, uh, wife do. Um, my wife is always putting up little scriptures, little faith things, and getting them from friends. If you have this, is it showing up on Facebook? Do you have Internet favorites that are religious sites? The stuff's available. Let's make technology work for us. We, we can do this. And um, the kids do this. They actually are... The faith-filled young people are using social media to connect around faith matters. You know how many kids have parents as their friends on Facebook? What percentage? Anybody know? Venture a guess. How, what percentage of kids have their parents as friends on Facebook? Fifteen. Think, think about this generation. That's close. Seventy percent. My kids don't, but <laughs> I don't think I want to know. Some of the things they put up there, boy, I don't know why you'd want your folks to see. But anyway, the uh, again, emphasizing how close this generation was there with their uh, between the youth and their parents. Colleges have now orientation for parents because they're recruiting parents because they know the kids have the parents involved in that. Who does the army market to? Have you seen the commercials? The parents. So, again, it, it's just there's an opening here. What about, remember that small piece of the pie that the time is getting? What if we weren't, what if we would be stronger gatekeeper of our kids' times? Where we make sure that God gets into their calendar, that we have meals, that we keep the Sabbath and seasons at least somewhat, observing the anniversaries, going on vacation. A vacation is necessary for families. It's like a parish mission for the home church. You get away, you have fun, you make memories, but do you leave God behind on vacation? Or does finding a new church on vacation become part of the fun? We always included God. And again, it can be a way of awakening faith. Take God along. And as was said, 
Make sure your kids are part of events at your parish, including youth ministry, retreats, service projects. How about money? Are we teaching our kids to give? Are we teaching them those commandments? What is it? The love of money is the Okay. How about this? You can't serve God and you you have to choose who's going to be in first. Here's another one. You can't outgive God. Are we teaching them the joy of giving? Are do if they have so my my kids they earn money they have um, an allowance where they have to pay for their things they need to be giving to their parish or a charity. I, I insist that that's part of what they're learning. I came to that late. To, I'm sorry about that, but they are learning how to give of their money. If we don't ask them to do that, they don't learn how to do it, and they become enslaved to an idol. An idol will bring you down. If you can't give your money away, it's going to enslave you. So teach them to ask, what is my calling from God, not what is the gold at the end of the rainbow? What, what can I do to make the most money? That is a sure road to unhappiness, believe it or not. They don't know that. So, faith is a foreign second language. We need to talk about them in a Catholic way. Connect faith and life. Do we ever read the Bible, read the catechism, other faith things? Do we ever ask them to practice talking? Tell me the Ten Commandments. What, let's name them together. Last time we did this, we got nine, <laughs> which is pretty good. Anyway, these are all measurable things we can do, but we I, I think most of us aren't. And what about teaching about relationships? Or No, put this first, teaching them. Another finding on that gold sheet, you'll see, that kids learn when they're taught. But they found that we're afraid to teach them about faith, so they're not learning. So one of his recommendations, don't be afraid to teach them, but remember the relationship is more important than your technique. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a formal teacher. You can't help but teach them. So keep a warm relationship that's loving and has boundaries, and make sure God is part of that. I tell my kids... I have to answer to God. He's going to ask me when I die and I go to be judged, did you teach your kids about me? And I got to tell them, yes or no, and this is what I did. So that helped them be a little more open. They didn't know, they didn't know that I was getting a grade too. <laughs> so, uh, but that's part of, of what it is. Also, our, our young people are smart, but they don't know the what and even less the why of our moral teachings. We have reasons for what we believe, and they're going to have questions. Don't be intimidated. If you don't know why, say, I'll have to find out. I don't know why. But it makes more sense when you can talk through why, like this one young lady here, and this is a big one, why do Catholics say marriage is only between a man and a woman? That seems kind of prejudicial and unfair. And you kind of have to talk it through. God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. It's the way he designed it. 
We can't redefine that, neither can the state. There's more to it than that, but that's the starting point. Why is that? Sexuality matters. And there's certain ways we dress, certain things we watch and don't watch on the Internet, on the TV. We're not doing very good in this area. And, boy, our young people are suffering about it. Something my dad did, something I do, I hope you do too, comment on the news. Comment on shows or commercials. You know, it doesn't have to be a big preachment, but just let them know where you stand. Otherwise, it's everything goes. And then the right and wrong about relationships. The big commandment, love God and love your neighbor. Well, what does that look like? What does that sound like? What are the commandments? What about the virtues? What about our Catholic social teachings? What about relationship skills? By the time they come to Father, they know what commitment is. They know what honesty is. They know what sacrifice is. They're learning that from you already. But if you can talk to them about what it takes, talk to them about, uh, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a break here, parents. Kids, you cannot ask your parents personal questions to see if they were sinners. <laughs> Just assume that nobody's perfect, okay? Parents, you don't have to give all the, all the intimate details of failings, but you can say, learn from my mistakes. Maybe I didn't know what I know now. You can do better than me. So, wrapping up here. So how can now our parish, if you start doing all this, even more than you're doing now. How can our parish put parents at the center? Something like this is a good start. Help them form their faith. Make this model more of a reality. I'm not going to put your staff on, on, uh, on the spot here, but they're working on that. How can we equip parents, grandparents, step-parents to evangelize? We can coach parents. We can encourage them. We can equip them in all of our programs. Don't just talk about the program. How can we help you be primary? We're running this way, race. We don't want to drop this baton, and we have a responsibility from the Lord. We can do this. Again, if I've made you feel guilty, not my intent. I hope that you see that we have an opening here, and if we take it, this next generation can grab that baton, can do better in living our faith and handing it on to the next generation. So this is part of our prayer, I think. So we have a commandment. And should we just work this into the prayer? I'll just, I'll just say the Shema from Deuteronomy. I'm sure Jesus learned from Mary and Joseph this command. To love the God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And what I'm saying is the commandment to parents was drill this into your kids. They've got to learn this. It's our responsibility. They will learn it if we mean it and we're trying to live it. <laughs>